Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Like, bossy McFatcat, like, can write an individual <laughs> check, right? I would like that to be the name of my corporate pack. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ella Nilsson and Dylan Scott. It's great to have you back on, Dylan. It's been a while. Ella's been doing a lot of these great midterm special episodes, and uh, glad to have her here as well. wanted to talk about the Democratic Party, because Donald Trump, I feel like, fills the channel almost all the time in the media. And a lot of people, if you're not, like, in a target district, maybe don't even know, like, what are Democrats saying? Like, so, you know, as we're here, like, two weeks out from the midterms, like, what's the Democrats' message, Dylan? Healthcare, more than anything else. I mean, eight years after, you know, Republican opposition to the Affordable Care Act uh, helped sweep Democrats out of the power in the House uh, in the 2010 midterms, I don't think there's any more unifying issue right now for Democrats on the campaign trail than health care and particularly Obamacare and its protections for pre-existing conditions. You'll hear Democrats. I think it's telling that you hear Democrats talking about that issue in North Dakota, in Missouri, in West Virginia, and in Indiana, like if they need to win crossover voters, if they're positioning, even if they're positioning themselves as moderates and centrists in these states that voted for Trump in 2016, the top issue in their campaign ads and the statements that they're releasing and just where their focus is has been on pre-existing conditions. And and talking about the Republican health care bills last year and the various policy changes that the Trump administration has taken that would have rolled back the protections that the health care law instituted that protect people and prevent them from facing higher premiums or, or being denied coverage altogether because of their pre-existing conditions. So this is sort of like the long-awaited, right? I mean, long-time politics junkies will remember that 8,000 years ago, (laughs) Nancy Pelosi said, we need to pass the bill so that people can find out what's in it, right? And this was like widely played as a like, lol, Democrats haven't even read the bill kind of gaffe. But what she meant— was that the bill contained many provisions that she believed were extremely popular, even though Obamacare, quote-unquote, yeah. was unpopular. Yeah. And the bet was that over the long run, as these things came into existence and the the details became salient to people, it would be politically beneficial to Democrats. I think her hope was that that was going to come true by 2012 or so. Um, Took a little longer. Yeah, there was an amazing little polling result I saw today. So to your point, Matt, like for the longest time, Obamacare was really divisive. It wasn't very popular. Like approval was stuck in the mid 40s. And I was actually looking through the cross tabs of a Fox News poll this week, and they had polled the Affordable Care Act's approval rating. And it was like 55% approval and 40% disapproval. And the most amazing thing maybe is that we don't even talk about that anymore. Like last year, it was a big story when Obamacare finally hit 50% approval ratings during in the midst of Republican 
Republicans trying to repeal it. But now, like, we just sort of assume that, like, three-fifths of Americans support this law now, even though that is completely contrary to what had been American politics for the last, or for most of this decade. And that's, like, the, the common theme for Democrats, right? Like, that's, like, the topic that plays... No matter what, everywhere, exactly. And and even though we had this very sort of divisive discussion earlier in a a primary phase about health care on the Democratic side, right? So, I mean, do we have people in contested races talking about these Medicare for all things that— We do, but I think what's interesting is even they— in a general election context, have pivoted more to talking about pre-existing conditions. Republicans want to take away their health care bill. I, I interviewed uh, Kara Eastman, who is one like kind of the classic example of this. She's a progressive Democrat running in Omaha in a toss-up district, and she ran on Medicare for All in the primary. But I talked to her shortly after the primary because I was interested in all these Democratic candidates running on Medicare for All. And she even then, sort of very shortly after she had become the official Democratic nominee, was clearly more interested interested in talking about how Republicans want to try to take away your health care and all the, the downfalls of the GOP's health care plans than sort of continuing to focus on Medicare for all. Not to mean that I think she's she doesn't support it anymore, but the emphasis is much different, I think, when you're talking to a general election electorate versus the Democratic primary voters. And actually, Medicare for all has become a big Republican sort of message point. Yeah, Donald Trump had that. I think you guys talked about this recently, that that crazy op-ed about how Democrats want to turn America into Venezuela by giving everybody health care. Socialism. <laughs> right. Well, it's the Council of Economic Advisors put out this report, right, on oh, socialism. Yes. And they even they quoted our colleague Sarah Cliff as an example of someone who argues that a single-payer system could reduce administrative costs. And they said that Mao used this same argument about farming, and it led to a famine. Mao, known for his affinity for efficient healthcare. <laughs> oh, who knows? It did make me wonder what the Chinese healthcare system was like. I don't know the answer. Yeah, I that. also don't know the answer to that. It's tragic. So that's what we'll be after the midterms. We're going to do a deep dive into Chinese healthcare in the 50s. So, one thing that I remember from a little while ago is that Nancy Pelosi started talking about a culture of corruption in yes. Washington, which it was a callback to a sort of like one of their big 2006 talking yes. points. And frankly, the culture of corruption seems a lot worse now. The 2006 iteration of corruption is, is almost quaint. So has this been playing or do Democrats talk about this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was kind of interesting because this is something that Pelosi has been on for a while and certainly, you know, was a thing in, in 2006 as well. But a few months ago, I talked to Congressman uh, John Sarbanes of Maryland, who has kind of been spearheading like the the House Democrats democracy task force. So he's kind of the guy that has really sort of been at least kind of putting some of this stuff into into policy and and bills that haven't really had a chance yet in in the Republican-led Congress. But yeah, I mean, Democrats are going in hard on an anti-corruption message because it's popular. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like if if we remember back to the 2016 election, Donald Trump also ran on an anti-corruption message. His catchphrase was and continues to be drain the swamp, which Pelosi pointed out was like something that Democrats were saying back in 2006. So Democrats have a pretty detailed plan for what they're going to do if they do take back the House. And one of the things that we'd like to point out, you know, there's all this speculation right now a couple weeks out before the election about how much, you know, if Democrats win, is it going to be a bare majority? Is it going to be a larger majority? But one thing that they can do no matter, even if they win by a single seat, 
they can investigate the hell out of the Trump administration, and they certainly plan to do so. Yeah, two right. things about that are interesting to me. One is, I mean, it's just in general, there's no more comfortable position to be in in American politics than like running in opposition to Washington, right? So I think in part, Democrats are are just picking up on a kind of tried and true playbook. And I was struck, I, I was interviewing the chair of the Ohio Democratic Party this week, and he was talking about how, like, especially with swing voters, just presenting yourself in contrast to Washington as it exists right now still remains kind of the most effective message. But the other thing that is interesting about this to me is, like, it does seem like Republicans have tried to pick up on this idea a little bit. And and because at this point, all they sort of have, they've abandoned crossover voters and they're just trying to motivate their base as much as possible. So I feel like they've also leaned into the idea of the specter of all the Democratic investigations and how they're going to sort of persecute President Trump if they take back the House. So yeah. I don't know if that makes Democrats wary at all. Over, I mean, they they have ran I mean, on it's, this in a it's, lot of places. This does seem like an issue where, you know, unlike on the pre-existing conditions, it sort of plays a little bit differently in different places. Like I know one campaign I looked at a little was in Texas 21, which is like very much a lean Republican seat where, you know, like the Democratic candidate will probably lose, even though Democrats will probably win a majority. And like, he is really trying to emphasize like, we're going to work across the aisle. And like running against Washington means that that district is like running against the partisanship mm-hmm. and, like, level of insanity. And, like, his opponent, Chip Roy, likes to emphasize the idea that, like, no, like, if Democrats take the majority, it's going to be, like, all subpoenas all the time. Whereas there's a number of 20, 22 districts where Hillary Clinton won and where the Republican members have often tried to distance themselves on one policy or another. And there they, like, really want to emphasize, like, no, right? Like, Carlos Corbello, Barbara Comstock, Will Hurd, like, they are not doing anything. Haven't they started calling her Barbara Trumpstock in these campaign ads, I think, right? <laughs> that's, so, that's very clever. Yeah, that's right. that's, a, like, <laughs> that's loud, apparently the Loudoun best we County can do. cutting edge humor. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia Town is near D.C., and it's, it's going to be one of the lamest places in America, I think. <laughs> wow. Harsh. <laughs> Have you been there? I guess you're never going to run there. <laughs> no, I won't. Um, it's fine. It's fine. It's a lot of uh, government contractors, you know, right. um, good, good times They're out all there. Good but so what, what is in the Democrats' anti-corruption agenda, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. like, the point of it is that, like, Donald Trump is bad and Congress should do something about it. And in reality, there's probably going to be a lot of committee hearings and, and subpoenas, but they have these, like, laws they want to pass. Yeah, right? they also have, they have actual legislation that they've drafted. And I think it's, it's it's kind of interesting. So when I sat down with Sarbanes, one of the, I mean, obviously, there's cracking down on lobbying is a big part of that. That's also was a big part of a Senate bill that Senator Elizabeth Warren passed that was this very sweeping anti-corruption bill that, you know, has no chance of, of <laughs> getting anywhere in the Senate. <laughs> But one of the really interesting ideas in this uh, House bill is kind of dramatic campaign finance reform. So it would be voluntary. uh, You know, you don't have to do it. But under John Sarbanes' vision, um, candidates that wanted to opt into this system, the federal government would provide a six-to-one match for every small donation to candidates who agree to forego PAC money. So these candidates are, you know, making a bold statement that they, you know, are not— taking PAC money, not, you know, being bought by corporations, which is, you know, something that that is very popular with with voters. So, you know, the idea is like if if a small donor gives $100 to a candidate that is 
you know, meeting those requirements, then that candidate would get a $600 match. So it would kind of be equivalent maybe to what they would get from from PACs. Although— That's a lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and and he sort of—the point that he made to me is that this is sort of like being tried out in, you know, on municipal levels and sort of catching on state levels a little bit. But that's a very bold statement. Actually, this corporate PAC issue is worth talking about because it's, like, one of the most interesting things to arise this cycle, right, is that, like, every once in a while something catches fire as, like, a signifier that you have clean hands in politics. And the, like, I don't take money from corporate PACs has become, like, a big thing for, like, non-incumbent Democrats trying to pitch themselves as, like, bold Reformers, and particularly for like a guy like Better O'Rourke, right, has like cash in on this. And it's a way of like being a true progressive without necessarily actually adopting like the Bernie Sanders democratic socialism yeah. agenda. It's interesting because it means less in concrete terms than you might think, right? I mean, like the way a corporate pack works is like a business, like we could have like the Vox Media pack, right? The bosses will officially encourage employees to, like, check off a thing so money goes into it, and then the PAC can make donations. So that's, like, a way businesses try to influence the political realm. But, like, rich business executives can also just write big checks. (laughs) (laughs) I was also, like, is O'Rourke not taking any PAC money or just— corporate PAC money. I think no PAC money. I mean, I think it's legitimately all individual contributions. But I mean, just to say that like, that like, the wealthy, bossy McFatcat, like can write an individual (laughs) check. Right. Right. I would like that to be the name of my corporate PAC. (laughs) So it's like, the the, the corporate PAC is a convenient way to organize companies' campaign contributions. And traditionally, it was like the company wanted to make it clear to the member, like, we are helping you out. And so if members want to disavow that, I think in this first iteration, when, like, most candidates do take corporate PAC money, it probably really does signify something. But it's also the kind of thing that the world can easily adapt to. Of course. Like, like both the corporate donors and the candidates who love them are like going to be able to get the money without the corporate pack to build like actual legislation on this like it would be interesting to see where that actually gets you yeah definitely run. and i you know when i was when i was talking to sarbanes i was like wow that's very bold and he was like well you know we got to go bold we got to sure. do it <laughs> <laughs> well and it's good right it's the kind of thing that like it sounds really good to people and they don't yeah. necessarily fully understand the implications. So it's like to have a bill that's like this, like this is a bold bill that will, this would drastically cut down the influence of corporate PACs. Like whether yeah. doing that would achieve like the policy goal of reducing businesses' influence over Congress, I'm a little skeptical. But it's like if if you want to talk about corporate PACs, like this is a great, good way to do it. It's yeah. better than the alternative. I mean, for so long it felt like Democrats were, they were really reluctant to let go of, of you know, lobbying corporate PACs and, and mega rich donors for money right. because like they thought, you know, we would, it would be an unfair playing field because they give so much money to Republicans. So I think this still seems like progress, even though to your yes. point, Matt, like the influence can still be found. Well, I mean, what, what, what's interesting is that it's like in the optimistic story, right? It's like, well, you have this small donor revolution and it's mm, eating right. away. But the thing that is happening is like the influence of corporate PACs is also being eaten away on the other side. So like Sheldon Adelson has spent $125 million on House Republicans. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you don't necessarily need a lot of corporate PAC money if, like, Sheldon Adelson is going to personally cut you a 
uh, whatever it is, 11-figure. Yeah, a couple enthusiastic billionaires will take you a long way in <laughs> politics. The dream, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what else do they have? Lobbying packs? Yeah, so lobbying. Tax returns? Yeah, so again, uh, a few months ago, I got this list from the House Oversight Committee, the Dems. So House Oversight, the ranking member is Elijah Cummings, who's also from Maryland. He would likely be the chairman if, if the Democrats take back the House. Um, so they have a list of, I believe it's 52, like, subpoena requests and other things that, you know, they have basically, as the ranking member, he has requested to the Republican chairman, we would, you know, we want to investigate this. Of course, the Republicans haven't done anything because it's Trump and it's their party. Um, but it's it's a range of things that they want to look into from, um, you know, stuff that, you know, like HHS has done on 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 healthcare, that the education department has done on certain civil rights things, you know, Trump's own business ties. There's a platter of, <laughs> <laughs> of things that the Democrats want to investigate. And, you know, again, Sarbanes, like the Democracy Task Force, like recently released like a list of, I think it was like 600 different times, you know, Trump has, you know, flattered the law or, or this culture of corruption that their point that they're they're hammering on. So they have they have a wide array of things that they are preparing, basically. <laughs> okay, so we should take a break, but then I, I want to ask a question about the, the sheer length of this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So one thing that has been troubling from a journalistic perspective, but also politically for Democrats, is simply that when there's somebody who there's like one scandal about, 
Like perhaps they violated State Department email protocol or (laughs) misstated the extent of their Native American ancestry. You can, through repetition, make it be the case that everybody knows this one unflattering fact about that person and that it is covered consistently as like – Here is that if you are going to profile Elizabeth Warren at this point, like you're going to mention this thing about Native American ancestry. Whereas like Donald Trump, through the sheer multiplicity of scandals, like lots of people probably never heard about the New York Times tax fraud story. I constantly am surprised that nobody knows that he once ran a publicly traded company. The value of the shares went to zero because he stole all his investors' money and paid himself millions of dollars. (laughs) Right. Right. So people don't know this stuff about Trump. So with 600 investigations, I mean, it seems like you might be better off with like two. Yeah. It's sort of like on the one hand – if you're investigating everything, you just sort of create this this like aura of like how how corrupt everything must be at, in DC. But to your point, it does that does kind of risk becoming white noise to voters. What would they focus on? I, like the tax well, returns make sense as something returns. to I mean, focus on. I guess what I wonder is like, is anybody in charge on the Democratic <laughs> side, right? Or is there going to be like 80 million different? It, it's of course Republicans might hold the House, but it's like if Democrats get the House, like. Who's calling the shots in terms of like, this is what we want to be talking about this month? And I don't have an answer, but it's an interesting question because you contrast it with the Senate where like, regardless of who has the majority, you're going to have a bunch of Democrats in the Senate who are running for president in 2020. So they're more likely to start freelancing. Right. And they want I mean, to clearly, no, nobody is in charge in the Senate. Right. right? But like, yeah, the different, House. different presidential contenders like drop sweeping new bills to stand out and Chuck Schumer is in his first year as majority leader and I think he's takes a lot of criticism I know from liberals who I think don't always appreciate how objectively difficult it is to be a leader when like half of your caucus is running for president but in the house at least like theoretically Nancy Pelosi rules with an iron fist yeah definitely so I think um, we're you know when it comes to just Trump investigation stuff it's going to be House Oversight and then also the House Judiciary Committee so oversight is Congressman Cummings Judiciary the ranking member is uh, Jerry Nadler from from New York so he would uh, theoretically likely become the chairman but the other thing that I think is kind of interesting is that so a few God, back <laughs> I was I was about to be like a few months ago, and then I was like, no, earlier this month after the Kavanaugh hearing. Right. Um, so Nadler made some news when he said, you know, that House Democrats, if they win, will like sort of reopen investigation to Brett right. Kavanaugh. And the thing that he said, you know, is like, we want to make sure that this is a very like fair, bipartisan investigation, and Democrats are trying to, you know, put forth like this is going to be fair and bipartisan, and we're going to only investigate these credible you know, allegations. So I think that they're trying to position themselves sort of differently from, you know, House Oversight and Judiciary under Republicans, which is just like Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. Right, but I mean, I think, (laughs) but I think even that Nadler point, right, like this raises the issue, right, where it's like, look, if I was thinking, okay, I am Jerry Nadler. I am now the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. I have this safe seat in Greenwich Village and the Upper West Side. The House Democratic Caucus is pretty liberal. I want to do something that, like, my people are going to really enjoy. Like, going after this Brett Kavanaugh thing, that seems like a no-brainer, 
Right? Yeah. Like, it's squarely in Nadler's jurisdiction. People are mad as hell about this. Like, women are super mobilized in, in general. At the same time, if I'm looking at, like, the electoral map in a hard-nosed way, right, it seems clear that, like, there are narratives that work for Democrats everywhere, right? Like, this is healthcare preexisting conditions. Like, Donald Trump takes bribes from foreign governments, I think I would probably put on that list. <laughs> Whereas, like, persecuting Donald Trump's judicial nominees, I think we, we've seen in the way that the Kavanaugh issue, I think, has worked very well for Republican Senate candidates. It seems like I would probably not want to make that, like, the central focus point. Yeah. Right? right. Like as a strategist. And a question that I have is like, does Nancy Pelosi or anybody else have the sort of authority to say, look, we have this like vast menu of things we could do. We are going to pick like, I mean, the way they have basically on healthcare, right? It's like Democrats are are running nationally on a couple healthcare points that they think are really popular and play everywhere. But are they going to have the capacity to maintain that sort of discipline? Right. And I think that that is, that is something that we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, I'm sure that those conversations are going on um, and especially, yeah, that they sort of want to pick and choose where they might be most effective. But, you know, you're right. I think, you know, right now Democrats aren't in the majority. So they're just sort of trying to blast out there, like, look at all of these scandals, like, look at every single one, look at all this corruption. But I think you're correct. They're going to have to be sort of more strategic when they are actually in power to sort of really kind of like rank those 52 or 600 right. yeah. and, and you know, start at the, the biggest well, one and go down. What's interesting to me is there's all these like contradictory headwinds almost because if Democrats win a majority, you're going to have, you know, a pretty big set of more sort of moderate center-left Democrats who won and swing toss-up Republican-held districts. You're also going to have a bunch of new progressive Democrats who won primaries this year, people like Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yes. obviously. I think we all agree that Nancy Pelosi would be the Speaker of the House if Democrats win a majority, but she's also signaled that this is sort of a temporary, she's just a placeholder for the time well, being. Yes. And so how much, you know... Th- that's, that's where I wanted to go with this, right? Yeah. Like, if Nancy Pelosi was the Nancy Pelosi of 15 years ago, then I would say no doubt, right? Nancy Pelosi is going to huddle with the top canny strategists in Democratic Party politics and is going to tell them, as she did, I mean, there was a version of this in 2007 where, like, she told people, and, like, it did not go over well, but she imposed her will on the left that, like, they were not going to threaten to refuse to fund the continuation of the war in Iraq, Right, that like Democratic base was really geared up about the war in Iraq. Nancy yeah. Pelosi opposed like her stated position was that we should withdraw troops from Iraq. In 2008, Democrats like ran on withdrawing troops from Iraq, but like the objective was going to be to win the election in 2008, not to have a like huge divisive fight about this. And what she thought made sense, like. She won, right? Yeah. Like, even though most House Democrats were from safe seats and are very left-wing and, like, probably did not agree on the merits with that position, like, she was in charge and she imposed her will. It looked earlier in the summer like she might not actually be able to hold on as speaker. Mm-hmm. 
that time has passed. Yeah. But it seems like part of that deal is that she is going to become speaker again, but also make it clear that she won't be around for very long as part of sort of selling that to members who aren't thrilled. But I feel like that's going to make a, make for a weak leadership. Yeah. Yeah, so she recently said in this uh, LA Times interview that she views herself as a, quote, transitional leader, which is something that other members of the, like, the other two top members of House leadership, Steny Hoyer, the whip, and then Jim Clyburn, who's uh, assistant House leader, they've sort of been, you know, kind of in the background. Neither of them are going to openly challenge Pelosi, but they're sort of waiting to see if she can get to, to 218. So they have sort of been been pitching themselves as transitional leaders as well. And now Pelosi kind of like, I think for the first time at least that I saw in an interview, you know, used this language as well. And she was like very clear to like not like actually give herself an end date. <laughs> yes. And she sort of alluded to like, I would like to spend more time with my grandchildren and and do other things like outside of Capitol Hill. But yeah, I mean, it's very true that for a long time, people have just been clamoring for for new blood in, in leadership. And I think she kind of has to sort of walk kind of this tightrope between, you know, not making promises or at least sort of giving the appearance that, you know, she does not see herself actually in in that position forever and sort of looking to who might be the next generation of leadership while at the same time making clear that she's going to be a strong leader and not a lame duck leader. And I don't really know. I mean, I don't really know how she balances it. It's it's a tough situation. And here we should talk about like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been very widely discussed for months now. But I think the concrete impact of her winning that primary has not been discussed that much. But, like, the way this went was that the top ranks of the Democratic leadership, right, Pelosi, Hoyer, and um, Clyburn, were all roughly the same age. Yeah, they're all in their late 70s. Right. And so an understanding had arisen, right, like, had Pelosi stepped down after 2010 or 2012, probably Steny Hoyer would have been her successor. But an understanding developed that, like, no, that after Pelosi, leadership was going to pass to a new, younger generation. And that meant Joe Crowley. Yes, people <laughs> thought it was going to be Joe Very Crowley. Very specifically. Yes. And so the question would have been, had, had Ocasio-Cortez not run against him, the question would have been, will Crowley challenge Pelosi, right? Or will they work something out so that there's a a pacted transition, as there was between Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer, in which Pelosi becomes speaker again, gets to, like, claim vindication and her place in history, but she now sets up probably with a concrete end date. You know, maybe it's two years, maybe it's four years, but then Joe Crowley is going to take over. They are a leadership partnership, and so it remains a strong bond. Crowley lost, and that left— the whole leadership without a, like, agreed upon, this is the next person. There was no successor anymore. Right. There was no, it was like, uh, you know, there was the whole thing, uh, you know, a king's job is, or queen's, uh, I guess, is to, to give birth to an heir and a spare. And there was no spare, right, in, in this situation. So now you have Hoyer and Clyburn both sort of, like, reviving speakership hopes that they had set aside, 
in the right. past. And they, like, invented kind of this transitional concept that, like, maybe Pelosi won't have the votes. And, like, nobody really wants Steny Hoyer to be the future of the Democratic Party. But also nobody knows who they do want. So, like, maybe he could agree to be a kind of, in effect, weak, preemptively lame-ducked speaker. Right. Which I think ultimately proved to be not that compelling an idea and, like, help Pelosi get her legs back. But it means that whether she sets an end date or not, one of the dominant themes of 2019-2020 is going to be people trying to position themselves. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there are already, I mean, there are a lot of of names of younger members, sort of like the people that people are excited about are not going to challenge Pelosi outright. Right. And those are people like, I mean, you know, Adam Schiff from California, who's a close Pelosi ally, Hakeem Jeffries from New York, who people really seem to like. There's some question of, of if he might run for caucus chair, which is the fourth ranking position. You know, there are a few other names floating around. But yeah, I think all of these people are going to sort of, are setting their sights lower because, right. yeah. Well, but, it seems- but it's still, but I mean, this in terms of like setting the investigations, right? So it's like Adam Schiff is ranking member on intelligence, right? And he's on television a lot. Yes. And Nancy Pelosi likes him a lot. And it's not totally clear that he has support in the caucus that's commensurate with his support from the leader. But so one thing that's going to be on his mind as he, chairs that committee is that he is trying to become Pelosi's successor. But that's also something that's going to be on the minds of other people. It seems to me like probably a real impediment to coordination that various people of sort of that generation, Jeffrey, Schiff, are going to be essentially maneuvering against each other, right? I mean, whatever whatever formally happens with, like, well, they, they run for caucus chair as a kind of, like, test case. Like, they're going to be spending, just as in the Senate, I think what people know that, like, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Kristen Gillibrand and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are trying to run for president. But, like, many prominent House Democrats are going to be trying to run for top leadership jobs. Yeah, and I feel like what further complicates this is the Democratic caucus in the House has been so hierarchical for so long that a lot of the, like, I mean, right now they're ranking members, but the chair people in waiting are definitely part of the old guard. They're, they've been around for a long time. A lot of them are older and whiter men. And so, like, in terms of somebody who would really galvanize, you know, especially the kind of young excited part of the party that in terms of people in the house, like you're really talking about picking out like a rank and file person. Otherwise you're talking about like your Adam Schiff's, you know, like Frank Pallone of all people is the energy and commerce ranking member. So, you know, Paul Ryan was unique in a sense that like, you know, he had been the vice presidential candidate, but he still, because of the way house Republicans had run their caucus, he was the house ways and means chairman and like had been sort of set up as an obvious heir apparent to everybody maybe except for him when John Boehner stepped down. And I feel like Democrats have not in the same way groomed like a young, exciting, fresh face who could step in instead we're choosing from these sort of less than inspiring people who have been in leadership or leading committees for a long time. Yeah, and that's kind of the main tension is that there is this hierarchical structure that has been fashioned over the years where, you know, it's just like – to be, like, successful in the House, you have to wait around for decades before you're even going to get, you know, a really nice 
committee chairmanship, there is frustration among the younger members of the House that, you know, sort of like, what am I even doing here? Like, I could I could go run for governor or I could go run for Senate. Or Beto I, O'Rourke, for Beto example. O'Rourke. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, Javier Becerra, who was seen, seen as a potential Pelosi successor, you know, left to go become the AG of California. So there are a lot of people like Jared Polis, who a lot of people see as like a young, promising congressman, is running for governor in Colorado. Um, right. People but, are leaving. And I, and I was saying to somebody the other day, they were asking me, you know, what what I thought uh, Ocasio-Cortez's like real future in Washington was going to be. And I said, I mean, I don't have any inside information, but like I, I said, I think she'll run for mayor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That like it seems cool to be a rising star House Democrat for like— a little while while it stays fresh. But, like, actually, your star will not, in fact, rise anywhere unless you stick around for 25 yeah. years. It seems great until you get into that small little office in the Cannon House building. Right. And you're like, wait, what? And this is because there's a difference. So Republicans impose term limits on their committee chairs, and then they have the caucus elect the new chairs. And seniority counts, but it's not decisive. And so somebody like Paul Ryan, who is seen as a rising star, who the donor community liked, who was good on television and was networked with policy people, could get, like, put in charge of the budget committee, not because he had been on the budget committee longer than anyone else, but because Republicans felt he would be a good spokesperson for the Republican budget vision. And the Democrats are not like that. Like, you don't sit around and say, like, who should be the face of good government? And we're going to make that person the government oversight chair. It's just Elijah Cummings has been in Congress for a long time, and he's been on that committee for a long time, and so he is owed it. And formally, it is elections, but the members— I mean, the young members don't like it, but, like, the caucus is very committed to a fairly strict seniority system Mm -hmm. that makes it just not that appealing to if you, like, have a lot of charisma and dynamism and people like you, it makes much more sense to go run for something else. Yeah. The other thing I wonder, not to take a total right turn, but the other thing I wonder about the Pelosi and the transition uh, in Democratic leadership is, you know, how much pressure she's going to feel because— I think if nothing else, this is my own theory anyway, like Trump benefits from a good foil. And like I could see Speaker Pelosi being a great foil for Donald Trump, potentially, especially with his own voters. Like we've seen Republicans try to use the idea, like they're still using her as a, as a boogeyman. And I think it's been maybe not that effective in the midterms because I think voters inherently sort of understand like it's sort of ridiculous to to put the minority leader in the House front and center. But if she becomes speaker, the whole dynamic is going to change. And I guess I wonder, especially heading into 2020, like how much agitation there's going to be among Democrats if Trump decides to turn Nancy Pelosi into his new crooked Hillary Like, that just seems like it could sort of force her hand. Like, I think they have this idea that we can sort of do this on our own terms. And I guess I wonder if sort of outside political considerations are going to speed this up. Like, this came to mind because, Matt, you mentioned, like, could she move on in four years or eight years or something? And I wonder if that timetable is going to shrink depending on how the politics Well, and there's just also, like, a media piece to it, right? Like, Pelosi has not historically been, like, a go-to Sunday show person, right? Or like do the stand up on CNN kind of thing. But 
the way the American Constitution works, like in effect, Chuck Schumer has been the leader of the Democratic Party for the past two years because the Senate can filibuster things and because when you can convince Lisa Murkowski to defect, you can block things and nobody cares what the House minority thinks. But if you're Speaker of the House, like you are now going to be the most important Democrat in Washington and will certainly have the right to sort of demand that you get booked on shows <laughs> to say what Democrats think about the issue of the day. And I don't think that Nancy Pelosi thinks that Nancy Pelosi is the best person yeah. to be like, hey, I'm going to go on television and say what's up with this caravan. But like somebody needs to fill that role, right, which is not like a formal leadership post, like you're the caucus vice chair, but just like a kind of like a go-to spokesperson for who speaks as a compelling person but who speaks for the caucus yeah. rather than for an ideological faction. And, like, they're probably going to have to figure that figure that out pretty fast. Yeah, which is hard, again, because of the, the dynamic in the Senate where you have a bunch of Democratic senators who will be funding for themselves. So, yeah, I think there will be this sort of – this vacancy for a, somebody to speak for the unified Democratic Party. And I don't know. I don't mean to be unfair, but I could see why you might worry, especially given the history of the last 10 to 12 years, that if Nancy Pelosi fills that role, and to your point, she may be very well aware of this, that, you know, that that may play to some of the very easy attack lines and such that that Trump is going to use as he gears up for 2020. Who who else is waiting in the wings there for Democrats? You mentioned Schiff. Jeffrey is... Yeah. Um, One person that I'm kind of interested in is Sherry Bustos from Illinois, who... She's in not top leadership. Second but, tier. Yeah, exactly. But so she's from the Midwest. She is very aggressively, you know, helping campaign and especially in like more conservative red to blue areas. Um, and I think, I mean, she's she is very outgoing, very good speaker, could be sort of that person that's that's on television. Uh-huh. And, and, and the other thing and that I think— And she represents downstate Illinois rather than Chicago. Yes, right? exactly. So important she to represents, understand. She represents like rural, rural yeah. areas. And I do think especially, you know, because like the two other names that I brought up, like Schiff and Jeffries— We've sort of had this like like ping ponging of of leadership from like New York and California sure. kind of. So it's like you know Crowley was was from New York, and I think that there is within the caucus. I think people are looking to, especially after twenty sixteen, like people from the Midwest and people from more rural areas to sort of like have have a voice and try to break away of the image of the Democratic Party just being the liberal elite coasts. Right. Has the uh, has the Tim Ryan bubble officially burst? He was an Ohio Democrat from a relatively rural area who right. talked about challenging Pelosi to, as the Democratic leader. I think Tim Ryan has other aspirations yeah. other than okay. House Speaker this time. Around. <laughs> um, <laughs> So um, I am interested that we do not hear more about uh, Benway Lujan. Yeah. No, that's a good point. He chairs the the GCCC. And especially given that Democrats are favored to take the House and that his job is to get the Democrats to take the House, I have been like – genuinely surprised that I have not seen a single, like, spoon-fed Benway Lujan profile anywhere, no, like, in-depth look at, like, the secret data team that has been the genius behind the Democrats' war strategy or something like that. It's weird, but he he is of the appropriate age. Um, There are no Latinos anywhere prominently in the Democratic Party, except for him, really, at this point. And I don't know. It seems like a no, you're right. Contender. You know, you're right. And I have, I definitely have heard his name mentioned. I think, yeah, and, and especially like if Democrats do really well in 2018, I think 
he will definitely be under consideration. I think he's he is a fa- he's fairly close to Pelosi. You do kind of bring up uh, a good point, which is that I feel like the people that have been like working really hard over on the D trip side of things, like current members of the House, so like him and then Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, who has been working a lot with red to blue candidates. And everyone that I talk to, like, loves Catherine Clark. Uh-huh. And and she is running for vice chair mm-hmm. of, of the caucus. And it's sort of like, it's like these two people that are kind of like these workhorses, kind of put their head down, don't seek a lot of press. Um, I mean, it's, but, it's very different from yeah. those of us who remember the Rahm Emanuel, DCCC. Rahm is really into taking credit for things um, very, very aggressively <laughs> and making yeah. his presence known. And the current team is, is much more low-key. Yeah, exactly. But I do think, you know, those conversations are certainly happening. I think that both of them, uh, you know, seem to be well-liked within the caucus. So we'll right. see. And that's the important thing. I mean, I guess, like, one thing that people can forget about this is that while, like, we all have opinions about, you know, like, who's good on television, like, who's smart, who has ideas that we agree with, fundamentally, like, these decisions are made inside caucus and the dynamics there are really different from like the takes that you see out in the universe like just like one like really basic thing that i that i see people get wrong all the time is that like the way that like balance of political commentary is is that you hear a lot of criticism of nancy pelosi from the left but like when her leadership seemed to be in danger to the extent that it was it was in danger from the right yeah, that's the thing that drives me nuts all the time. I just saw an, a, a recent article that was, like, talking about, like, all the progressives that are, like, upset about Nancy Pelosi. And I'm like, no, like, the, within the caucus, that's not true at all. Like, the progressives just seem pretty allied with her. Well, right. If, if, it's unless the red I'm to blue really, people. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, unless I'm forgetting, <laughs> the real place where, like, do you support Nancy Pelosi for speaker or not is a litmus test is, yeah, in these in redder conservative districts. Areas. But, but yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's confusing because, like, yeah. what happens in, like, in the narrative, Right. Like as a take, mm-hmm. like Democrats should become more conservative has like gone extinct. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas it used to be a thing lots of people thought. Right. Particularly after Democrats would lose an election. But now like nobody says that. Right. So it's just taken for granted in the discourse that like people who are mad at Democratic leadership are like they love Bernie Sanders or, you know, they're socialists or something like that. But like in the caucus, like that is not at all what is happening. Like, you can find a progressive member who has some kind of complaint about Nancy Pelosi, but, like, she is the progressive leadership candidate. And there has not been a left challenger to her or even a clear left successor option, right? Like, all the people that we named are Pelosi allies or maybe a little bit more conservative than she is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and like again, like coming back to if Clyburn and Hoyer are potentially, you know, looking to slide in there if she fails to get to 218 votes. I mean, yeah, she's been able to position herself very well by being like, I am very good at this job. I'm very effective. I'm a woman and I'm, you know, arguably like more liberal than than these two white uh, one one older white guy and then obviously there's also a dynamic playing out for more representation for potentially a black speaker or a black majority leader at the top so we'll we'll see about that but yeah a lot of different competing things going on within the caucus 
All right. Well, we should wrap up, uh, get on to other things. But thanks, guys, for coming in and explaining that stuff. And, um, you know, we're going to have to see in two weeks how relevant it all becomes. We'll all find out but how I think, this is going to I think more likely than not, this is, like, not really what we've been talking about in the campaign. But I think it's really going to sort of define the, the winter coming sort of struggles. Um, so thanks, of course, to all of our listeners. Check us out at the Weeds Facebook group if you want to ask any more questions. And we can try to follow up on, on some of these points. And thanks, of course, to our producer. Producer Griffin Tanner, and the weeds will return on Friday.